Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. My guest today is Glenn Richardson, and today we're going to talk about a rather hidden gem of the Renaissance era and Renaissance king Francis I or Francois I, if you're going to be politically, politically correct. And as always, of course, I begin with how did you get interested in this era of the Renaissance and Francois I? Uh, well, I became interested in Francis I when I was doing my uh, doctoral um, work. Um, I did my first degree in the University of Sydney in Australia and I studied the um, the Italian Renaissance very largely, um, and then I uh, came to England to uh, do my doctoral study, uh, and that was not on Italy so much as on France and uh, relations between uh, England and France in the early 16th century during the reign of Henry VIII. And it was um, in the course of writing all of that research that I became very interested in Francis and um, I find him uh, as interesting as Henry VIII and also Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor. And uh, a long time ago, I read a book called Renaissance Monarchy, which compared Francis, Charles and Henry. Hmm. And let's begin, for, I want to begin with this, because I believe his latest biographer, she argues that whereas Henry VIII kind of failed being um, tried, but failed to be a Renaissance monarch, Francis I succeeded in this. And I believe you disagree with her theory. Um, yes, I mean, I, w- I would say that uh, if we're talking, what do we mean when we say Renaissance monarch? And if we look at contemporary uh, writers uh, like uh, Machiavelli, of course, or Erasmus, or Sir Thomas More, or Claude de Cécile in France, um, uh, what, what they seem to identify as uh, what a monarch was in the Renaissance was three things, that a monarch should be a warrior and defend the kingdom and defend his, his dynastic inheritance, that he should be a, an effective governor so that he should pass good laws, maintain justice, uh, make sure that the crown was as strong as it could be in the country and was working for the interests of, I suppose, everybody, but particularly the the landed classes, the the nobility, Um, and that he should also be a patron, so be the centre of attention uh, of the political uh, sphere so that he gives offices and titles and jobs to the nobility, keeps them employed, uh, gives them honour and status as as working for the monarchy, um, and also in the more narrow sense of being a patron of arts, of music, of architecture, uh, of all that sort of thing. And if you 
if you take that basis, you have to compare people equally. Uh, and the person who had the greatest resources uh, to do that in the 16th, early 16th century was, of course, Charles of Habsburg, who became the Emperor Charles V. And uh, he was famous all over the world and uh, had a lot of dominions and territories. So he was the dominant force in the period of the 1520s and 30s and 40s. Um, but then uh, Francis uh, was a great competitor of Charles because of issues in Italy and other things. Mm -hmm. um, so, so Charles was, uh, it was the primary focus with Francis. But Francis also took Henry VIII quite seriously because Henry VIII, although he came from a comparatively small place, a small island, England and Wales, population no more than about three million, but he was in that competition between Francis and Charles. Henry could often be quite strategic. He could be quite um, pivotal uh, and assisted by his great minister, Cardinal Wolsey, and then later, you know, Thomas Cromwell. I think Henry was in his own context as much or as great uh, a Renaissance monarch in England um, as Francis was in France or, or Charles. But it's just that his his sphere is much smaller, but we have to give him credit for being able to compete with the other with the other two who had much greater resources and much bigger kingdoms. So in that sense, I think Henry was um, successful as a Renaissance monarch, whether you disagree or disagree with him breaking from Rome and all his marriages and all that stuff. Mm. Um, I think he, he made his name in Europe. And one of the people who he was most engaged with was indeed Francis I. So let's begin from the very beginning and Francis' upbringing, because he wasn't born into the royal family. He married into them later. So how how powerful was his family and his side of the family at this point? And how, what was his upbringing like? Mm -hmm. Well, he was, uh, of course, a member of the Valois dynasty, not the direct line, but he was part of the Angoulême uh, branch um, of the Valois dynasty. Uh, and his uh, parents, uh, Charles d'Angoulême, and his mother, Louise de Savoie, uh, uh, had two children. Uh, their eldest child was Marguerite, uh, and she was born a couple of years ahead of Francis. And she was important in French literature later, and in she was a very great supporter of evangelical reform of the church in England during her brother's reign. Uh, and she, so she was quite intelligent, very well educated. Uh, Francis was born in 1494, uh, at Cognac, and he is uh, very, uh, from a young age, um, he's very tall, he's very robust, uh, he is educated in all the sports of the nobility, so hunting, um, riding horses, sword fighting, all the kind of things that a young nobleman uh, was educated in. Um, but his mother, Louise de Savoie, his father died when he was only one year old, um, but his mother, Louise, was very determined that both her children should be very well educated. And she employed uh, what we now call humanist tutors or, or the works of people like Francois Desmoulins, um, who was interested in humanism, the, the, the new learning, the studia humanitatis, that, as, as it was called. Um, so Francis was well educated for a young nobleman. Uh, and he uh, grew up, you know, very strong, very tall. He was considered quite handsome. Uh, and 
the king at the time, well, as he grew up, you know, from, from 1498, so when he was still a child, the, the king became Louis XII, his, uh, I think he's called his cousin, first or second cousin, um, who had no son. Uh, and he married uh, first Anne of Brittany, um, or first, sorry, first Jeanne de France, uh, and then Anne of Brittany, uh, in order to try to uh, have a son and also to, in their second marriage, to keep hold of Brittany. Um, but he had still had no uh, son by the time that uh, Francis was getting to, you know, the age where he would become the heir apparent. Um, he did have two daughters, uh, Claude and René, and uh, in 1506, uh, seeing the situation, uh, Francois was engaged to or betrothed to Louis's daughter, Claude. Um, and so they weren't married, but they were sort of betrothed to each other. Uh, and then in 1514, uh, after a war with uh, Henry VIII of England, Louis XII married uh, the sister of Henry VIII, Mary Tudor, not, not his daughter, but his sister, Mary. Um, they were only married for a very short time, and they had no children because um, uh, they were only married for about three months. Uh, they married in October 1514, and Louis died um, on the 1st of January 1515, mm. and that's when Francis became king of France because his predecessor had died without a male heir, and, of course, in, in France only uh, men could inherit the throne. So as his nearest male relative, that's why Francois became king in 1515. Mm. So let's talk about this marriage that you said to his daughter. And was this, could, did that marry that with someone else or just push her child aside? Or was it like, you get king if you marry, become king if you marry my daughter? Um, well, the, the, the marriage uh, to Claude eventually uh, took place in, in 1514. So by the time he became king, he was uh, he was already uh, a married, married man, oh. young man, because he was about... 20 when he when he became king just on just before uh, um, in 1515 so um he both he and his uh, then wife claude had had been the subject of marriage negotiations with other nobles and uh, uh, in the past but when he became king uh, that became the basis of a, a fairly uh, good effort if we can put it that way um, of securing the Valois dynasty. He had uh, a number of children. He had about four daughters and three sons, uh, not all of whom survived to adulthood. Um, the only one of his sons that, have, that eventually survived was his second son, Henry, the Duke of Orléans, um, who, of course, eventually succeeded Francois in 1547 as King Henry II of, of France. Uh, so the marriage to Claude was was a good one. Um, it was a very companionable marriage. Uh, she was pregnant more or less every year from uh, the time of his becoming king in 1515 until her death uh, in 1522. Um, she uh, so bore him more or less one child almost every year or uh, just over a year during that period. Um, they were quite productive. They were, yes, yes. It, it, it was, a, like I said, it was a companionate marriage. Um, and Claude was the daughter of Anne of Brittany, 
Louis XII's second wife, and was a very important patron of women, uh, of, uh, of learning and culture at her court, uh, and was very important. And Claude herself became an important uh, uh, patron of, of ladies in France. Uh, in fact, one of um, one of the women who became part of her court uh, in about 15, 1518, 1519, was a young Anne Boleyn, uh, who uh, spent several years as a lady-in-waiting to Queen Claude uh, and then returned to England uh, about the time of Claude's death. Um, uh, and uh, the rest, as they say, is is English history as mm. to, to what happened. But Anne, Anne Boleyn's uh, time in, in the court of Claude was an important part of her allure for, for Henry because she spoke French very well and she had all that sophistication of the French court, uh, which Henry found very attractive uh, when they met. I remember reading about this, and I believe she was quite beloved as well, Anne Boleyn, in the court. Um, yes, yeah, she, she was well known. Uh, Francois sort of knew her as one of um, uh, the Queen's ladies-in-waiting. There's there's no sense that they had any kind of relationship or anything at all, but he knew of her. Mm. Um, uh, but but she's really part of the story of, of Henry VIII more than, than mm. Francis. So let's talk about his first treaty, and this is the Treaty of Blois. Sorry, I'm poor with the French spelling, so I don't know if I say it, I'm probably going to say a lot of names wrong, but let's talk, let's talk about the Treaty of Blois. Well, for... um, his, his priorities when he becomes king, Louis XII had been uh, reasonably successful in uh, extending the power of France into the Italian peninsula, um, like Charles VIII before him, uh, he had claims, which it would be too boring to go into, but he had claims to the Kingdom of Naples in the south of, of Italy, uh, and also, um, more particularly for him, to the Duchy of Milan. Um, and, and Louis had successfully conquered the Duchy of Milan and held it till 1512, when he'd, he'd been forced to relinquish it. Uh, and when Francis became king in 1515, he was determined that he would reclaim the Duchy of uh, Milan. Uh, and in order to do that, he had to secure uh, the neutrality or at least the, the non-interference, both of Henry VIII, which he did um, uh, which, with a treaty. Uh, he also secured, uh, I don't think you'd call it peace, but a kind of uneasy ceasefire yes or truce or you know not do anything with uh charles um of habsburg um when francis became king in uh, january 1515 the the netherlands were very worried that he would you know try and move against them and so they asked um that well they, they proclaimed really charles who was the uh, the archduke uh, they, they proclaimed him able to be of age so that he took control as overlord of the Netherlands from 1515. And then a year later in 1516, his grandfather, Ferdinand of Aragon, died. So Charles became king of Spain. So mm -hmm. from the start of Francis's reign, Charles is there mm -hmm. as a kind of competitor, the heir to 
the, the competition that had been between the Habsburgs and uh, the Valois kings, um, Louis XI, Charles VIII, and Louis XII. So what Francis really wanted to do was just to sort of stop all that for a moment, which he did, in order that he could concentrate his attention on regaining the Duchy of Milan. Mm. And uh, because Charles wasn't really in a position to do anything to stop him, and neither was Henry, uh, Francis was able to very quickly, he becomes king in January 1515. By uh, August, so the same year, uh, he's leading an army uh, into northern Italy and in September uh, 1515, there's a, a battle to, for the Duchy of Milan um, between uh, Francis and the Sforza family, uh, who, was in, who were controlling the Duchy at the time. They employed the, the Swiss mercenaries. Uh, and at the Battle of Marignano in September 1515, uh, Francis defeated the Swiss mercenaries and the Sforza and he was able to reclaim French possession of the Duchy of Milan, which was quite a big duchy, obviously, in the northern part of Italy, uh, the lordship of Genoa and, and other places as well. So um, he made a really, in, in terms of Renaissance warrior, he made a very good start. Um, and everybody in Europe was amazed that this young king, um, who was only 2021, was able to lead this army over the Alps and, and you know, conquered the duchy. Um, he came to, the first major treaty that he came to was the Concordat of Bologna uh, with Pope Leo X, uh, who uh, recognised him. He didn't really want to, but he was kind of forced to recognise uh, Francois as the new Duke of Milan uh, in return for various concessions about the way the church was governed in France from, from Francis. So it was a really, uh, it was an amazing beginning. Um, Charles was, Charles of Habsburg was very depressed <laughs> by this. Uh, Henry VIII it, uh, almost burst into tears when he heard that, um, that Francois had done this great thing. Uh, Henry, of course, was, was trying to, as he thought, trying to conquer France like his mm. ancestor, Henry V. But he'd only managed to conquer a, a couple of towns, etc., mm. in 1512, 13. But here was Francis, only three years later, conquering an entire mm. duchy mm. and with it most of northern Italy. Mm. So uh, Francis was the, the new star um, on the show. And let's not forget that Britain did have... That is in the early 1200s, and for a long time, even up to maybe up to 105, they had huge chunks of French territory. Of course, some of it they inherited from the Normans and under the conquest of William the Conqueror, and of course, in other Eleanor of Aquitaine in when the marriage to Henry II, and of course, other territories as well. But by this time, in the Francois I era, they, they had been reconquered, if you will. So they're, yes. they're really just a small chunk of land in France left that was belonged right. to the, the British. That's right. The, the English had the Pas de Calais area immediately around Calais, um, and that's all they had left after uh, the end of the Hundred Years' War in 1453. But Henry VIII was really trying to, against not against Francois at this point, but against Louis, uh, he was really trying to restart the war and conquer more territory. 
Um, he didn't uh, conquer too much. He conquered the, the small town of Terroan and the biggest city of Tournai, uh, which uh, he, he, he took in 1513. Um, and Francis wanted that back, and we might come on to how he gets that back later. But um, so, yeah, so, so Francis is aware of England, but his real focus is Italy, and his real threat is. Charles of Habsburg, a king of Spain. Yeah. And again, we should also mention, of course, that Italy wasn't this united kingdom that they are today. There were several several small duchies. Yes, rulers, you know, yeah, the Venetian Empire, which later would Venice would become the net part of the Habsburg territory until the reconquest. And you have yes. all these small small territories that weren't united as they would be That's in right. the nineteenth century. Um yes, I should I forgot to mention that that at at the campaign in 1515, the uh, ally of Francois was the Venetians. Mm. And they made an important, uh, we haven't got time to go into the whole battle, etc. but the, the arrival of the Venetian allies um, was very crucial in helping Francis to victory. Mm. So let's go to the next project, because as you say, it was a great builder, and we're going to talk about some of the buildings I want to yes. know, know, which is the port... Let me just check my notes here, just a second, which is the port of, uh, bear with me, Port de Havre, that he builds. Would this be a significant port, or what part would that play in French, both military and trading? Uh, the, uh, the, sorry, the, the port, which port was that? The Havre, I don't know, I don't know if I say this right, I'm so, so, so sorry about my French. Pronoun, pronouncing, but they have rare. Never try, try to write it Le down. Havre? Le Havre? Um, uh, yes, that's the one. Right. Uh, well, I mean, that's an important uh, port. Um, and uh, Francois begins to build up um, the royal uh, fleet, because uh, we'll come back to this later maybe, but the French have two fleets. They have a, a kind of North Sea fleet, which is based in places like uh, Dieppe and Le Havre. Um, but also he has a uh, later on, he develops a, a fleet in the Mediterranean from Toulon and Nice, etc. Um, so yes, he, Francis is very conscious of, of defending uh, the borders of, of France, uh, extended now, of course, into the Duchy of Milan. Um, and uh, when he when he comes back from Milan, he he begins also to put together uh, the kind of regime that that he um will we'll rule with and um he, he also starts to build uh, some of the the new uh court palaces that that he uh will be famous for later the first of those is at blois uh, in the loire valley um you mentioned the treaty of blois which was a bit earlier but um uh, he starts to build a new wing on the chateau at uh blois and it's now called the, 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 the Francis I wing. But it's the first um, really fully, he loved all things uh, Renaissance and classical. Uh, and he looked uh, and he studied architecture and he, he liked the buildings in, in Rome and, and in other parts of Italy. Um, and so the, the Chateau at Blois is the first building which he builds, which is in the Italian Renaissance style. And it really causes a sensation. It, it has a, an amazing external spiral double staircase because 
in the traditional French chateau, um, the, the staircases were in hidden turrets, you know, at the side. He builds this amazing symmetrical uh, external staircase at Blois, and it causes, everyone is amazed to, to see it um, there. So it, it, it kind of, it, with, the, with the Battle of Marignano and the beginnings of the, the Chateau of Blois, he's really trying to show himself to be a, a, a monarch who is, uh, well, he likes to see himself later as like a new Roman emperor in France. You know, he is mm. uh, fascinated by the classical world of Greece and Rome, and he wants to try to, to bring the Greek language, uh, Roman language, uh, architecture, etc., to France. Um, and so it's not just the military and the diplomacy, but it's also the culture that Francis starts to build in that period um, from 1516 onwards, as well as you were saying, like uh, the defence of the realm, the building of ports and defences. Can, can this port be seen today in, in Navarre? Port of Navarre, can it be still seen today or has it been demolished or destroyed? No, I, I think a lot of it um, has been sort of built over now. But you can still see the Chateau of Blois. Mm. Um, that's still very... People go to the Loire Valley to, to see that. Mm. So, of course, another thing that he's very fascinated by is art. In, and, of course, art flourishes in, in the Renaissance. And as we yeah. will come back to later, by the end of his life, he will have a steady relationship, if you will, with Leonardo da Vinci. But, but well, let's yes. talk about his uh, let's talk about his fascination for art. Uh, well, as I was saying, that with the, the building of the, the Chateau at Blois in this Italianate style, which is um, very, very modern in, in their terms. They would have seen it was very extravagant and modern. Um, he also, after the conquest of Milan, uh, he, he does meet Leonardo da Vinci and he brings him back uh, to live at um, a little chateau that he has next to the castle at Amboise in the Loire Valley. And uh, uh, Leonardo lives for uh, about two years or so uh, at the French court. Um, he does some sketches and he does some designs for Francis. Um, there's some thought that he might have put together a design for the Chateau of Chambord, which is built later, but, but nobody really uh, knows if that's true or not. He didn't seem to do a lot. He was very old by that point. Um, but uh, Francis liked to have him at his, at his court. Um, there's, a, there's a famous painting um, <laughs> of uh, Leonardo da Vinci's death, supposedly in the arms of Francis I. Uh, Francis was actually not anywhere near uh, Amboise when uh, Leonardo died in 1519. Um, but Francis liked to associate himself with the genius of, of uh, Leonardo. Um, but there were many other Italian artists who we'll probably come on to later, but uh, first Leonardo, but then others who followed to France because Francis was very wealthy, uh, France was a, a rich kingdom. It was very well taxed. It was very well organized. So he had a lot of money to spend on uh, demonstrating uh, that he was a, a new great monarch. Um, mm. And that's what he did. So, yeah, Leonardo had a good time at the end of his life, thanks mm. to Francis. 
Mm. And let's talk about, before we get into the rivalry of trying to become the Holy Roman Emperor, we, mm. I want to talk about, because he does get a daughter by Claude, and I, think, I don't know if it's, he got a few daughters, I think, but he also yeah. does get his first son, which later dies, uh, and so let's talk about the birth of his first son. Yes. Um, well, I, I can never, uh, forgive me, I can never exactly remember all the his daughters, I think it's Louise and Charlotte, um, who were born early, but his first son is the Dauphin, um, Francois, uh, and he's uh, born uh, in uh, 1518, and the uh, it's interesting because when he had, when Francis had conquered the Duchy of Milan and met Pope Leo X, he promised the Pope that when he had a, a, a son to secure the throne, that he would lead a crusade against the Ottoman Turks. You know, this was part of, of the, their deals. As you know, the opposite will happen. We, of course. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> um, exactly. But uh, so when his son is born, by, by that stage, uh, Henry VIII in England um, is, has been trying to do anything to stop Francis expanding and, and doing more exciting things and showing him up as, as being you know, not so great. Charles is also worried about um, uh, what's going on. And the Pope, um, in 1517, the Pope began plans for an international truce. He wanted a five-year truce between European princes because, um, I forget the, the details, but I know that the Ottomans, that under Selim, they'd got into, they'd invaded, I think, Iran, and Egypt and Syria, uh, and the, the papacy was very worried that you know they they were expanding, um, and so he wanted a five year truce. But Cardinal Wolsey, uh, who by this time is very important in England, uh, dis- he came up with a, a different idea. He said what we should have is like a United Nations or a NATO. We should have a a European wide defence treaty so that everybody belongs to it. And if anybody breaks the treaty, then everybody else will attack them. The, the Ottomans were kind of what Russia is today. In, yeah, in yeah, they were the, that's right, they were the outside. So um, it really was like a, a 16th century NATO idea. Anyway, lots of detail, but, but it, surprisingly, it's actually agreed uh, something called the Treaty of London or the Treaty of Universal Peace comes in in 1518. And Charles agrees to it. Uh, Francis agrees to it. Uh, Henry also agrees to it. And the Pope does. Venice does. So this extraordinary thing of uh, an international, not so much anti-war, but, but sort of mutual defence pact is what's agreed. Of course, that means... For Henry, that means that Francis can't make any more wars. You know, he can't invade any more of Italy. So he's very pleased about that. Charles likewise thinks, aha, well, if we're all in this together, then Francis can't do anything. For Francis, it's like, well, nobody can attack Milan because we've all promised not to fight each other. So my hold on Milan is secure. So that's good. There's another factor is that by that time, so we're talking 1518, by that time, the Holy Roman Emperor Maximilian von Habsburg, 
Charles's grandfather, uh, was ill or becoming ill. And uh, certainly Charles and Francis both wanted to succeed the Holy Roman Emperor um, to become the emperor after Maximilian. I'm and, just well, sorry for interrupting you a little bit, but uh, oh. we, should, we should mention that the, the, the Holy Roman Emperor, Emperor, if you're not aware of this, they were elected, they were successed like, uh, ro- like in the smaller kingdoms, if you will. They had yes. to be elected, which was massively expensive. Yeah, and we will get back to this, of course. But it was it was not succession necessarily, though the Habsburgs would, of course, be mostly the ones. Yes, uh, that's right. Um, but so for for Charles and for Francis, um, contributing to or being part of the international peace agreement would be a very good thing for an for a prospective emperor to be, because you know he would be seen to be supporting Christian peace. Uh, supporting united action potentially against the Ottomans and, you know, in the service of the papacy. So for all kinds of reasons, it all came together and it was signed in London in October 1518. Uh, And uh, that was all triggered by the birth of the Dauphin um, because Wolsey said, now that the King of France has a Dauphin and the King of England has a daughter, I will bring them together. And so there's a new Anglo-French alliance as well, um, which uh, was the first since 1514. And this time, uh, Princess Mary, uh, Henry's first and only daughter, sorry, only daughter by Catherine, first uh, living child by Catherine, uh, was betrothed to Francis's eldest son, the Dauphin, um, Francois. He's, he's, he's called Francois as well. Uh, and that led to this international peace agreement. And one of the important outcomes of that was a meeting two years later between Henry and Francis at something called the Field of Cloth of Gold in 1520. Um, a great meeting where uh, Henry VIII brought five or six, about five and a half, six thousand of his courtiers with him from England over to Calais, and Francois brought a similar number of his French courtiers up to uh, Ardre, a little town just near Calais, and they met for two weeks, uh, and they had a tournament, and both French and English teams fought, you know, not England against France, but mixed teams fighting alongside each other. and it was an amazing uh, success at the time. It was an extraordinary event, the Field of Cloth of Gold. Mm. Wasn't this where Francis beat Henry VIII in a wrestling right. match as Everybody well? Everybody knows that about him. Yes, there, <laughs> there was a wrestling match at one point between Francis and Henry, uh, which Francis won, because uh, mm. he was a very good wrestler. And part of his, that was, we were talking earlier about his education and um, Apparently, wrestling and, and, and sort of fighting were part of that upbringing. And uh, he, was, uh, he was very good at wrestling. So <laughs> he won the match. Um, and this really insulted Henry VIII. Well, yes, I suppose he just had to put up with it. But um, I think what Henry was trying to do was to, they, they built, you know, tents of, of cloth of gold and they built a temporary banqueting house. Uh, it was really bling, spending huge amounts of money, um, a bit... Uh, a bit like an Olympics or or like a, a modern uh, a peaceful event between countries. 
Um, but I think what Henry was trying to do was to say to Francis, um, you know, uh, don't you can't do anything without me if I'm your ally, you know, so don't go off and conquer any more bits of Italy or anything. Um, Francis was kind of saying, well, um, if you want to be important in Europe, then you should stay my friend because both of them, Francis wanted Henry's support, of course, against Charles. Um, because in you mentioned the, the, the election that happened in 1519, there was, Maximilian died and there was an election. And of course, that's when Charles became Holy Roman Emperor. So from King of Spain, overlord of the Netherlands, he also now controlled Germany, Austria, Hungary. Uh, of course, he had all the inheritance from his grandfather, Ferdinand of Aragon, um, in uh, the Central America, Mexico, and you know, the Southern America. Uh, he had claims to Jerusalem and all. all the, so he inherited a vast amount of territories um, through his grandfather, Ferdinand, and through his grandfather, Maximilian, and then he was confirmed as Maximilian's successor as Holy Roman Emperor. Francis had tried to become emperor, but, but as you said, he didn't have enough money to bribe everyone to. But was there a chance that he could have actually become Holy Roman Emperor? I mean, it was like, no, it's not gonna, it's not, there's no chance, no way. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't, I mean, Francis had, I think, the Marquis of Brandenburg and one or two other people promised that they would vote for Francis to become emperor. He did get some votes in the election, but most of the votes were already organised. Um, the the Maximilian had arranged with the Fugger Bank uh, to to pay money to all the various electors of the of the empire to to secure the Habsburg succession. Mm. So yeah, Charles was always going to win, really. Mm. So let's talk about the rivalry because they do become bitter rivals and as we shall see soon he shall become captured by charles v so let's talk about the rivalry with france francis and charles v okay well i mean the 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 problem for francis was that uh charles uh had territories all around france so because of this extraordinary inheritance that he has from his parents, his grandparents, you know. Um, he's the overlord of the Netherlands. He's in charge of Germany, Austria. Um, he does himself also have a claim to the Duchy of Milan um, uh, from the from the Swartzer side. Uh, and he's also, of course, um, in control of Spain uh, because of his inheritance. So, you know, Charles's power surrounds France. And so for that reason, if no other, uh, Francis has a big issue with Charles. Um, I don't think Francis thinks that Charles is going to somehow invade France. I, I don't think that's the issue. What it is is that um, Francis is going to stop, sorry, Charles is going to stop Francis continuing to pursue the French claims in Italy. So he might threaten Francis's hold on Milan, secured in 1515. But as the King of France, he also has claims to the Duchy, sorry, the, the Kingdom of Naples, which goes, you know, more or less from Rome, Naples down south, Sardinia, Sicily, etc. It's all part of an ancient, very ancient French claim. 
um, which Charles VIII had pursued um, in the previous century. Uh, and so there is this tremendous tension between them. They didn't get on personally. Whereas Henry and Francis and Henry, I think, actually sort of, they sort of like each other. They, they kind of, you know, they're both big, strong men. They're, they're both, um, you know, they're, they're, I think they see, in a sense, they see themselves in each other. So although there's rivalry, there's also a kind of brotherliness which they can have between them. With Charles, Francis feels no brotherliness. He doesn't, he's young, Charles is younger. Um, uh, Francis just finds him irritating and um, just wants to try and stop him uh, every way he can. For Charles, um, he is now the Holy Roman Emperor. He is the heir to the Dukes of the, the Burgundian Dukes, the Belvoir Dukes of Burgundy. He, he, he always wears, like I'm wearing black, like Charles V, um, uh, Charles always wears black and he always wears the collar of the the Toison d'Or, the Golden Fleece, the, the Burgundian Order of Chivalry, which he became the uh, sovereign of when he became the emperor. Um, and so he sees himself as wanting to bring Christianity together and be like, you know, the Hohenstaufen emperors of the past, you know, really show what he can do. Um, the trouble almost as he starts, as, as we know, is that almost just as he becomes emperor, the beginnings of what we will call the European Reformation begin with Martin Luther. Uh, and um, so from the, from the start, his, his, his control and his, his ability to act out the role of the great Christian leader that he wants to be is compromised by religious change. And I, do, gets... I do believe, sorry, sorry for interrupting yes. you again, but I do believe, kind of off the record, but I do believe that when Martin Luther met, according to Charles V's biographer, hmm. he does, he, when he meets Charles, meet Charles V, he, he, I think he loses the battle of words, I think, but he, he carried out like a hero by the people. Yes. He won the people, but he lost kind of his argument against Charles V by the people he was considered a hero and carried out by by them. Yes, I mean, uh, he's, he's, he has no real sympathy for, for Luther or for Luther's ideas. Uh, he sees them as a threat to good order. Um, and the fact that within, you know, half a dozen years, uh, lots of German states and some princes have begun to pay attention to Luther uh, he finds very difficult because uh, they should be Catholic and they should be obedient to him as the emperor. Um, we haven't got time to go into all of that, but the, mm -hmm. the, the governance of the of the the Holy Roman Empire was even more complicated than than France or England. Um, but I think to cut a long story short, I think he sees Francis as getting in the way of all of that, of not cooperating with him, of uh, not there, there are a number of territories on the border between the empire and France, which Charles claims from France, which France won't give to him. The whole Duchy of Burgundy, uh, he claims as the 
uh, as the heirs to the Valois Dukes of Burgundy. Um, so he wants all that back. Um, so th there's constant bickering the whole time between them um, about lands and territories and what they're up to. It's and needless to say the alliance didn't work out very well. No, that's right. It 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 didn't really work very well. Now, what what happens? I was talking about the field of cloth of gold and this, you know, mm -hmm. universal peace and all this, you know, NATO like thing. Well, it doesn't really work because Francis is too worried about what Charles will do. So, in a rather short sighted move, he uh, attacks uh, Charles's territories in fifteen twenty one. And then, like, um, like secretly um, supporting, he, he has a a proxy war, if you like, um, uh, supporting one of the nobles who is against Charles. In and then, when Charles attacks France in return, he says, "Oh, Charles has broken the terms of the universal peace. Help, help! You know, you must come and defend me. Everybody else. In fact, everybody knows that." Francis has in has covertly attacked Charles first, and so a, a kind of war breaks out in 1521 um, between Charles and Francis, um, and the the highlights of that are that Charles moves against the very thing that Francis tried to avoid or prevent by starting the war is what happens. Charles moves his troops into Milan. Uh, and forces the French out. Uh, he also comes into the north of France and takes the town of Tournai, which, which Francis had actually bought back from Henry VIII. Um, and so it, it's a very unsatisfactory war that breaks out in 1521, but from, from Francis's point of view. Um, but he does, he does stop any further incursions into France itself. Um, and it's a few years later, uh, there's, there's an effort by uh, Henry and Charles, uh, ally against Francis in 1522-23, and there's actually an invasion of uh, northern France by English troops in 1523, but it doesn't really get very far. Mm. Um, it sort of, it runs out of impetus, um, the, the imperial troops and English troops were supposed to meet up together, but they miss each other, and it doesn't doesn't happen. Um, um, yes. Yeah. Sorry. I'm sorry. I thought you were finished. My, my, my mistake. But yeah, I'm sorry for interrupting you again. No, and uh, and uh, something I want to talk about before we have, and we have to move on. I know we don't have too much time here, but mm. I want to talk about Francis' second son, which is significant, quite significant to French history, which is. I mean, that, I mean right, with the okay. introduction to Catherine de Medici, which we will talk about later, which is, of course, yes. Henri II. Okay. Um, well, that's fine. That, that works actually quite well because um, uh, all that war that breaks out in 1522 that I was talking about, so Francis defends his kingdom. Uh, and then uh, in 1524, uh, he gets an army together uh, to invade... Italy a second time to, to get back. Because remember I said in 1521, uh, Charles, the emperor, conquers Milan and takes it off Francis. 1524, Francis comes over the mountains again 
to try to get Milan back, and um, he besieges the city of Pavia uh, in the winter of 1524. Uh, and then in the, uh, the February of 1525, uh, his, his effort to try to conquer Milan is defeated by the emperor's troops. Charles is not there, he's in Spain, but um, his forces capture Francis um, at, the uh, at the Battle of Pavia. So Francis's effort to to you know uh, conquer Milan a second time is a failure, and he's actually captured and taken off to um, to Spain, where he spends a year, um, and he has to sign a very humiliating treaty, the Treaty of Madrid in fifteen twenty six, in order to be released by Charles V. He has to promise not to claim Italy or Milan again, to give back the Duchy of Burgundy, to do everything that Charles wants in order to get back home to France. So he agrees to that, and then he gets back. But he doesn't really want to fulfil the terms of that treaty because it would mean, you know, giving up much of France. So who does he turn to as his friend to help him against Charles? Henry VIII of England. Um, Henry had been hoping to invade uh, France again with Charles after Francis was captured, but France, but Charles wouldn't, uh, wouldn't play game, it wouldn't do it. So Henry is rather angry with Charles at this point. So he does a complete turnaround, and instead of being enemies with Francis, allied to Charles, Henry VIII now becomes once more allied to Francis, and enemy of Charles. And that treaty is secured by the marriage of, or the, not the marriage, but the betrothal of Henry, uh, Henry this, uh, sorry, Henri, if I can call him that. Yes. Henri d'Orléans, um, uh, Francis' second son, uh, to Mary Tudor. This all happens in 1526 27. Um, and there's another great Anglo-French alliance, um, uh, and the, the two are betrothed. Uh, why does Henry want Francis' support in 1527 against Charles? Uh, because it helps to keep him in the picture. But also, in 1527, Henry VIII is beginning to think about divorcing or annulling his marriage to Catherine of Aragon. Catherine is, of course, the, the aunt of Charles. So I'm, I'm coming back. Don't worry, I'm coming back to Catherine in a minute, Catherine de Medici. Mm -hmm. uh, so for the next uh, three or four years, between 1527 and about 1533, um, England and France are united again against Charles. Uh, Francis has returned to his kingdom. In a sense, his reign starts again in 1526 when he comes home after that year in Spain. If I may, I want to draw back a little bit to his chapter as well and talk about for a minute or two, if you will, because he just got quite popular in Spain, I believe. There are pilgrimages yes. to meet Francis in, yes. in Spain. Yes. Well, I mean, he, like I've been saying, from, from the time of his accession in 1515, he is a, he's a bit of a star king, you know. Uh, his... Uh, his court is very big, his conquest of Milan, 
um, it's it's pretty amazing to see a king who's been defeated, you know, on the field of battle. Um, he's a very um, uh, well. People think he's very good looking. He's very tall. You know, he, he's a very imposing kind of character, and he seems to have had a a, a kind of charisma and a, a a personal charm with with people. And you're right that that when he's uh, when he's being taken from one part of Spain down to Madrid. Uh, where he spends most of his time, people flock to come and see him, you know, because he is this um, celebrity king um, mm. who's been captured. Um, and that's... I mean, imagine Johnny Depp or some some other celebrity, Brad Pitt, being captured and they come yes. to your town. You want to you want yes. to see them? Yes, that's right. You want to see this this glamorous, you know, still relatively young man, you know, this glamorous king who who was you know fighting and and. He lost, but he lost valiantly, kind of thing. Mm. Um, anyway, uh, he trades on all of that, um, and this this alliance, which I was describing, results in the fact that um, he also wants to get the papacy uh, back on his side as well. By this time, of course, the Pope is uh, Pope Clement the Seventh, who's the second of the Medici popes. Leo the Tenth was the first. Clement the Seventh is the second. Um, and so he begins negotiations uh, to try to break Charles and the Pope apart um, because the, the, the Pope had supported Charles against Francis in Italy. So now he's trying to break that up. So what the, the, the Medici family have always wanted to marry into royalty. Mm. And so uh, the, the, the Clement, the Pope, proposes that I think she's conventionally called his niece, Catherine, should marry Francis's second son, Henri d'Orléans. Um, and uh, there is a meeting in Nice uh, in 1533. Uh, and indeed, Catherine de' Medici becomes the wife of, uh, so Francis's daughter-in-law, uh, he beca she becomes the wife of, of Henri d'Orléans. Um, there's a whole story which we needn't go into about what Henry VIII was hoping Francis would do. Um, Henry hoped that using this marriage alliance that Francis would tell Clement to give him, Henry, the annulment of the marriage to Catherine of Aragon. And Francis said, well, I'll do what I can for you. Uh, they met again uh, in 1532 at Boulogne and Calais, Henry and Francis. Uh, at another meeting. Um, Henry later said that Francis had promised him that he wouldn't let his daughter, his son marry the Pope's niece unless Pope agreed to give Henry the annulment. Francis said, no, what I said was, when my son marries the Pope's niece, then I have been in a strong position uh, to um, help you with your annulment. Um, so that's why the, the marriage is important uh, of Henry's second son is important both in English history, also in papal history, but also in French history. And before, and of course, nowadays Trump comes to France's freedom because he kind of buys himself free in a sense by saying, okay, you can, you know, set me free, but in, in, in my place, I will give you my two sons. Yes, that yes, in fifteen twenty six, when when he agreed to the Treaty of Madrid, 
he was allowed to go back home, um, but he had to send his two sons, Francois and Henri, uh, to Spain. And they spent uh, about three years there, I think, between 26 and, actually, about, well, about three, three and a half years, between 26 and uh, 1530. And they come back uh, to France in 1530. Um, by which time, of course, another thing to add, um, Queen Claude, remember I said, had died uh, in 1523. Um, uh, part of the Treaty of Madrid was that uh, Charles uh, gave his sister, uh, Eleanor of Castile, uh, to Francis to secure the treaty. So Francis's second marriage, which happens um, slightly later, um, in 1532, uh, his marriage uh, happens uh, to um, uh, Eleanor of Castile. Uh, and that marriage is um, not particularly close. Um, that's the time also very shortly afterwards um, that uh, Francis meets on his way back from uh, France, sorry, from Spain, um, he meets the woman that would become his important mistress, uh, the most important mistress of his reign, Madame de Tempe. Mm. Uh, he meets her and they begin a relationship after he comes back from France. So he marries Eleanor. Uh, and then that is also the time that the relationship with Madame de Tempe begins. Uh, so at Francis's court thereafter, you have the queen who is very much the figurehead of the court, but the real woman who is the key to the king uh, and who is important for understanding the way the court works is Madame de Tant. Uh, um, and she is his mistress right through to the end of his reign. And, of course, which brings us to the next, and perhaps one of the most important, because it would be the first European alliance with, of course, you know what we're talking about now, the Ottoman-French alliance, mm. as in, we talked about earlier. Yes. We talked about that they had a kind of NATO alliance against the, the Ottomans, but as you said, that the opposite would happen. So how did the Ottoman, I believe it was Suleiman I at this point, yes, in the yes. reign, so how, how did this Ottoman alliance, Franco-Ottoman alliance, come to place? Well, in broad terms, Francis, after the Treaty of Madrid, having got back to France, having uh, refused to um, uh, to comply fully with the terms of the Treaty of Madrid, um, this, this required a a renegotiation of it in 1529, the so-called um, uh, Treaty of Cambrai or the, the Peace of the Ladies. Um, he, he reached an uneasy settlement with Charles and for about six years, they were technically at peace. But Francis at that, through those years, did everything to make life difficult for Charles. So alliance with England, that's the first thing. Help Henry VIII with his marriage problems. Um, that alienates um, Henry from Charles because they don't get on because of that. The Protestants in Germany, you know, support the Protestants. Even though you disagree with them completely religiously, 
Um, he promises money and support uh, to the emerging Schmalkaldic League, the, 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 the Protestant League in, in Germany, or, sorry, the Empire. As you know, there was no Germany till 1870. Mm. But, um, uh, so make trouble for France, for, for Charles and Germany. Uh, try to get the papacy on his side. So the marriage, you know, between Catherine de' Medici and his son, Henry. Mm. And finally, try to get good relations with the Ottomans and try to interrupt Charles's activity in the Mediterranean, which is really what uh, Francis is trying to do. He wants to have an ally, a, a maritime ally in the Mediterranean. And that's really what the uh, alliance with Suleiman is about. Um, remember, of course, Suleiman had, uh, in the Battle of at Mohach in 1526, while Francis was coming back from imprisonment in, in Spain, news had come of the death of the King of Hungary um, and the splitting up of uh, Hungary into kind of um, area controlled by the Habsburgs and then controlled by the, the Ottomans. So anything that Francis can do that will cause problems for Charles, he will do, including the alliance with, with Suleiman. Um, so he sends ambassadors to uh, Istanbul uh, or Constantinople um, and uh, agrees to allow uh, Ottoman ships to oh. spend time at the port of Toulon. Uh, oh. So just to try to, to make life difficult, that, that's why. Whether, whether it really amounted to anything more than that, I don't know. I, mean, he, I don't think it worked very well, no. No, it, 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 it didn't work as well as Francis hoped. Um, the, 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 the Ottomans didn't actually have as much sea power uh, in the Mediterranean as he thought they might have. Uh, and it did not look good. It was mm. the optics, as we say now. The optics were not good to have the most Christian king of France mm. allied to the great Turk um, was not a good look. Uh, and people were very, you know, sceptical and, and condemned him mm. for, for allying. Um, and, I mean, and you, you a mentioned... modern analogy, I mean, I don't know what a modern analogy would be. I mean, I can't imagine NATO allying or, or France allying with China or something, but... Um, uh, it's, it's it's hard to have a, a modern equivalent. It was just you just did not do that, and yet Francis did it. Mm. I mean, you mentioned that they were great at sea powering, but they did have one specific person that the Europeans considered kind of feared more or less, who also would be at the port, at the French port, which of course is Vahedin Barbarossa, who was one of Barbarossa, the most yes. feared yes. pirates at the time. Yes, that's right. Um, because the, the Ottomans had um, a number of uh, vassal states effectively in North Africa. Mm. Uh, Charles uh, tried, well, he did, didn't he? Where He went to Tunis in 1535 and he took the city of Tunis and because uh, this was part of his great plan to begin the reconquest from Islam uh, of the lands of North Africa and, and the, eventually, of course, the Holy Lands and Jerusalem. This was part of his great scheme. Uh, and he did uh, uh, conquer the, the city of Tunis in 1535. And then a few years later, I think it's 1541, he sailed against Algiers. But a storm 
kind of broke his fleet up in the Mediterranean. Uh, so he wasn't able to do that. And all the while, Barbarossa and his ships were harassing imperial uh, vessels in the Mediterranean. It, it never, yeah, you're right, it, it never came to the great fulcrum of power against Charles that, that Francis wanted. Mm. And also, I think Suleiman probably was a bit disappointed at how weak Francis actually was. Um, I think he thought, um, from the, the kind of exchanges between the two courts, I think Suleiman thought that Francis was was much more powerful in the West than uh, against Charles than that he actually was. Uh, so it might be another case of, you know, Francis uh, tricking somebody. He was very tricky, Francis, you know. I do believe there is a story that the Ottomans settled to almost too much and started slave trading in the port where, where they were settled. And they, yes. they had so much trouble trying to kick them out, if you will. Yes, that's right, yeah. Uh, yeah, beware who you invite home as your guests. Mm. Um, <laughs> uh, no, I, I think um, that's right. The, the assumption was that that I, I think Francis had given the impression that the Ottomans could, you know, use their port as they would any other. But when they started actually uh, slave, beginning, you know, slave trade and things, he he he, he couldn't put up with that. You know, and you I know the saying: "Make yourself at home." Yes. Um, but also, I think by that stage, Suleiman is thinking, "What? What's the point? You know, um, this guy isn't as powerful as he as I thought he was, uh, so I'll just withdraw." Which is what it, essentially it fell apart, really, the alliance. Mm. Um, uh, so, which takes us into the you know the fifteen forties, which is into the last sort of um, five years of, of Francis's reign, um, uh, which. Um, I mean, all kinds of things are going on. I don't know what, um, with our time, what, what mm. you want I to... I mean, I feel like the France, it's the death of his first son, of course, should be mentioned, because the, Henry II would, of course, bring in Catherine the Medici after his death as a yes. regent. Well, he was not supposed to be the, the heir, heir apparent to France. That's right. Francis, yes. But, of course, his first son, who would die. That's right. He died in 1536. He... Um... Uh, he was playing tennis uh, one hot afternoon and he drank a glass of iced water and uh, Francois the Dauphin and um, he he had some sort of seizure. Uh, who knows? Who knows what it was? You know, he probably died of natural causes. But uh, in those days, any sudden death was immediately suspected mm. of poison. Uh, Francis said that, that agents of Charles V had, had poisoned the Dauphin um, and um, a, 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 one of his Italian uh, servants was was tried and then brutally executed for for the uh, for the death of the Dauphin. Um, probably it was some you know physiological problem that wasn't detected. Um, I, I do believe you. I don't, I don't know how you feel about your series about Catherine de Medici, but I feel as it may as it may have, but do you believe they do show this actually in the series that in the episode where where the Dauphin dies that they do execute someone, find yes. someone to execute him. They do, yes, yeah. Um, uh, he was, uh, I think, an Italian physician or servant of, of the Dauphin who was said to have been in the pay of Charles V and things. So, um, 
Yes, it, it was a very unfortunate episode for Francis um, uh, because uh, his daughters, I think only one of his daughters survived to adulthood. Um, Francois died in 1536. The Henry was alive. And then Charles, his youngest son, Charles d'Angoulême, um, he also uh, died in his teens, um, uh, a few years, 1544, 45, before uh, Francis's own death. So in the end, he was lucky. He had all these, you know, children and these three sons. But uh, in the end, uh, he was lucky that he was able to pass the crown on to, um, uh, you know, an adult, young adult son in the person mm. of Henry II when he died in 1547. Mm. And um, I, w- I want to, before we end this as well, I want to talk about his relationship with Catherine de Medici. But before we do that, and again, I want to say this is again one of those what if moments again. If he had the Dauphin died, would Catherine de Medici had gained had power? Would she have gone? Which she probably wouldn't have come to the throne. We probably wouldn't have had this history that modern France has today. You know, it's this is one of those middle key moments I think of yes, modern that, history. That's right. It, it's sort of. Uh counterfactual, I guess, but presumably, I mean, the Dauphin uh, was, um, I think, about 16, 17 when he died. Um, uh, Presumably, he would have married, who knows, a Habsburg princess in some treaty, or uh, it's not inconceivable, um, uh, you know, one of the the German princesses, or, or perhaps there might have been another, you know, marriage into the uh, one of the Italian noble families. It, it's hard. It's hard to know. Um, but yes, had obviously had he lived and and succeeded his father, then uh, the Duke of Orleans and his wife Catherine would have been, you know, secondary members of 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 the court. You know, the the king's younger brother. Um, and uh, all of that that follows, as you say, if if that hadn't happened, and. The, the Treaty of Cateau Cambrai, see where Henry II is killed. Um, uh, who knows? Because his three sons, under the guardianship of their mother, the whole collapse of the thing about Francis is that, which kind of is relevant. Um, he throughout his reign he built up powerful blocks of support. So he had his his great minister. Uh, Anne de Montmorency was was one you know, uh, his personal servant and friend, who he promoted and and who ran his court mm. became an important uh, power in the land. Um, the uh, the Dukes of Lorraine, the Guise, uh, Francis brought the Guise in, uh, accepted them to become what's called princes étrangers. So. Um, high-ranking, although their lands lie outside France in the rain, they become part of the French nobility under Francis. Um, and they would later France, become a bit of a pain to both Mary, Queen right. of Scots, and Catherine de Medici, of course. That's right. Uh, and then the other major block within Francis's kingdom, which is, is there, is the Bourbon family. Hmm. Um, uh, in 1522, the Charles de Bourbon, the constable, had revolted against Francis. Um, we haven't got time to go into all of that, but he was eventually he eventually was killed at the sack of Rome in 1527. Mm. Um, but the Bourbon family, the Guise, the Montmorency, you know, these very big, powerful groups of nobles 
and they all adhered around Francis during his lifetime because he was a very strong king. Um, and that was great for him because through these big blocks of nobles, he and their, their affinities, that's what I mean about him being a great patron, uh, he was able to rule France effectively because they did what he said, you know. And Henry II was the same. When he became king in 1547, he was very much like his father, and he too was able to keep the centre and keep all these... Sorry about this. I'll turn this there is... Yeah, sorry. Um, so he was able to keep keep the centre. But, of course, when he died in 1559, it all just collapsed. And you had these big, powerful clashes between the Guise and the Bourbon, the Bourbon, the Montmorency, you know. Mm. Um, and that's what the civil wars of the second half of the century were really all about. So in one sense, you, you can't blame Francis for it, but because he built up the strength of the nobility on the basis that he was in charge and they all respected him. Uh, what happens when the centre collapses, which is what happens in 1559, um, with a woman who is, you know, at the heart of things, Catherine, the mother of these three boys, hmm. um, Francois, Charles, and um, um, the youngest one, um, so you see how a system, a Renaissance monarchy system that works really well when, you, when you've got an adult, strong male monarch like Francis or Henry, it collapses when that's missing. And that's what happens in the in the French walls of religion. And before we go into the end, I do also want to mention, and you don't have to get too much into this, of course, I know you want to end soon, but he do, does warm up quite a bit to Catherine, I think. She is at his bedside. When he dies, I, I think, if I remember correctly, and they do have kind of a decent relationship, I think. They do. I mean, uh, I think that uh, the marriage was uh, something of a marriage of convenience back in 1533, that between Catherine and, and his son, uh, Henry. Um, of course, Pope Clement dies relatively soon afterwards, 1534, I think. Um, uh, and... So, you know, the, the, the connection to the papacy is really lost because then you have um, uh, Paul III who becomes uh, Pope then. Um, so the whole point of an Anglo-Papal alliance secured by the marriage of Henry to Catherine de' Medici kind of goes nowhere. But and in those circumstances, you would think that um, Catherine would be, you know, dismissed or whatever, um, or not really important. But actually, she seems to have got on very well with Francis personally. Um, and uh, I think Francis uh, and, and Henry didn't always get on very well at all. Uh, there was, uh, I, don't think, um, I don't think Henry ever quite forgave Francis for uh, sending him to Spain in, in 1526 for those sort of, you know, four years or so. They weren't close. Um, he was because, close to his first son. No, he was very close to the Dauphin. Mm. And then when Francois the Dauphin dies, um, he transfers his affections more or less to the to his baby, to to Charles d'Angoulême. Um, and there were plans for Charles, you know, to marry one of uh, Charles V's nieces or something and have Milan. 
there's a whole incredibly complicated efforts that France still goes to to try and get Milan back, not through war, but through diplomacy, which never come to anything. Um, uh, so he transfers his affection to his youngest son, Charles d'Angoulême, and, uh, and Henry, Henry II, as he will become, Henri d'Orléans, um, he kind of gravitates towards Montmorency, uh, who's also lost Henry's, uh, so Francis's favour, um, uh, in, in the 1540s. Mm. The, he'd been his, his right-hand man all the way through, but then they fell out over a number of things in the 1540s. But so Catherine becomes the link between uh, her husband, Henri, and uh, Francis's friend who's disgraced, and de Montmorency, um, and, but also with Francis. Uh, and she plays some sort of role um, as opposed to, um, of course, Henry has his mistress, Diane de Poitiers. Yeah. Francis has his mistress, Catherine <laughs> de Medici. And somewhere in the middle of all of that is Catherine de Medici. I think learning a lot about how politics and the court works. I do believe you said Catherine de Medici twice there, but... Uh... Well, she is. Well, there's yeah. Diane, Catherine... Yeah. Um, and, oh, and right. Madame de Tempe, the, the yeah, three right. of them sort of there in as as focal points uh, at, in the late court of Francis the um, First, and I don't think Catherine was the most important of them, no, but I think she learned a lot about how courts work and how all that operates. So that when in turn, when Francis dies and she becomes the queen. Regent, yeah, oh, yeah, queen, yeah. That's, yeah I was I was ahead of myself. Yes. She becomes the queen first, yeah, and then, of course, uh, at um, Henry's death, the queen mother, the regent, for her son Francois II. Um, yeah, she she knows a lot, but of course, uh, she is a woman, and this is another aspect of Francis's reign, which historians have talked a lot about. In a sense, the importance of women in his reign and his his life, because he starts with his mother. And his sister, who are, he's incredibly close to and who are very influential on him, and his, his, his artistic patronage and his intellectual patronage, you know, she, they're, they're very great supporters of him. His mother, Louise, is there in the council. She's a diplomat. She helps to negotiate peace treaties. Um, his sister, Marguerite, continues to be an important influence in the way religion develops in France in the 1530s and 40s. And then his own mistress, uh, uh, Anne de Ely, Madame de Tempe, uh, and then his daughter-in-law, as you were saying, uh, Catherine de Medici. Um, so women are, are really important um, for the, um, the unofficial power that they have uh, in, in the French court. Thank you so much for joining us and us. As you know, of course, the rest is French history. And before you go, do you have, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Do you have anything you want to promote? Any links you want to put in the, in the description below, social media, where people might find you? Uh, yes, well, I can I can sort of um, give you the the, the, the links, etc., um, yeah. to my emails, etc. Um, there's uh, the, the main thing I want to draw attention to is my uh, forthcoming book, uh, my biography of Francis I, which is coming out uh, in a couple of years for Reaction Books, 
uh, and I think it'll just be called Francis I. So I want to get it out in time for the anniversary of the Battle of Pavia in 2025. So I'm very much looking forward to it. <laughs> yes. All right. Well, um, nice to nice to talk to you. And thank you so much for coming on again. This has been Radat H12. We are available on Spotify, YouTube, Apple Podcasts, wherever you can find podcasts these days. If you do have the time, consider taking a, writing a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. That would help us out a lot. Please love my name's Alan. Please like, share, and subscribe. And I'll see you next time.